You're listening to Tech Talk Central. So that's the end of the uh, of the message from the sponsors. Um, so back to the book. Uh, I did actually put it up, and if you go to my listing on iTunes, you find that I'm. Oh, I must take my glass out of the way of the, the video. <laughs> you find that I'm kind of in good company. Unfortunately, if you reference their books, you don't get the same uh, same list the other way around. That's a one way one way algorithm. So the first question is, why is AI so important in mobile? And I think what you have to face is the fact that when you're stationary, you are using tools. It's tool use, right? It's like a hammer or a pair of pliers or some sort of thing. So when we organize this event, you know, we use sort of things like Eventbrite and so on. We went to Facebook. We dragged and dropped friends into boxes, let them go. We moved things. We kind of arranged things and so on. <clears throat> now, it turns out, and that's very tool use. It's, there's no essential difference between using a computer like that as a tool and when I do plumbing at home. It's a little bit cleaner. It's a little bit sort of uh, I can sit down while I do it. But it's just, just plain tool use. When you go mobile, it's quite difficult to use tools, right? Those intellectual tools we use where we kind of organize information. We no longer have the physical real estate to sort of put things here and put things there and compare things. Um, and we're under stress, right? We've got short time scales. We've got to be somewhere by some time. You know, you think about what happens when a tool goes wrong. It will take you, I mean, if you wanted to take the Eventbrite list and move it into Excel and then do a dedupe and, you know, I mean, this could take you four or five hours, right? And, and somehow with computers, we're prepared to sort of, uh, we organize our lives so that we'll start one of those jobs at five o'clock in the evening, knowing full well that at seven o'clock we'll break out a bottle of wine and that we might easily not finish until two in the morning. Well, when you're mobile, you just can't do that. You've, you've got a few minutes to, to achieve tasks. So interesting, of course, Helen came out slightly earlier and settled down slightly earlier than I did. So I was about half a day behind her. So for half a day, she was assisting me. So she had the tools in front of her, and I was mobile. And I, I got the, the fantastic use of Helen for half a day as my artificial intelligent kind of uh, um, helper, right? Or truly intelligent helper, of course. Um, uh, and so that's the, well, well, we're coming to the moment. Uh, in a moment, we'll ask that question properly, right? Right? So we, we will. Actually, I think I might have deleted that slide. So let me ask that question properly now. Um, well, actually, no, that's the question. So um, how far has AI progressed and how far does it need to go? Right? Um, I'm going to ask the question, can a machine think creatively? Right? Which I think is the limitation on machines. Are we just wet computers? Now, if we are just wet computers, Helen shouldn't feel at all um, sort of offended by me calling her artificially intelligent because artificial intelligence are just the same thing, right? It's just that artificial intelligence is not quite as good yet, right? But it's essentially the same thing. But it might be something very different. So where are we with AI today? So these are the poster children for, for AI. So obviously chess computer has broke, beaten the top grandmaster of whoever lived. Um, this is Aaron. Aaron is a computer and uh, composed, whatever you want to call it, um, that, that painting. Uh, Emily Howell. Have you ever have you heard of Emily Howell? Uh, download the CD. Uh, tell me whether it's a computer or not. Right? So is it music? I will play it a, bit, a, bit, a little bit later and you can tell me what you think of it. And of course, uh, 
Watson. So IBM's Watson, which beat the top uh, two contestants uh, ever of Jeopardy, the one with the highest score and the one with or the most money and the one with the most consecutive wins. So it beat both of them. So at the moment, you can see there's quite a, a, a slew of uh, artificial intelligence that's uh, out there. <clears throat> and we've got some big projects in the world. So in Europe, we've got a half a billion dollar uh, or Euro project going on called the Human Connectome Project, which is like the human genome. And the idea is to be able to map the human brain completely like the human genome and know all of the cross-connections of all of your neurons. Um, and then, of course, the question is, if you have done that, have you copied a human? So there's a project in America, uh, it's actually a non -for not-for-profit foundation, where some um, person <laughs> has donated $100 million uh, as a prize for the first person who can upload a complete human brain into a computer. Um, <clears throat> so there's you know, a lot of kind of sophisticated stuff going on. Uh, they are at the very foothills, and they're giving away small amounts of money to people who are making progress towards that goal. Uh, and as you can imagine, if you're a fabulously wealthy oligarch or um, inventor or whatever, right, you might actually want to give a, a bit of money to that from time to time, just in case you know, when you get to the end of your life, you'd like to be preserved. So I think they have quite a lot of money that comes in over the transom quite regularly to keep them being able to, to fund out a little bit of sort of... Uh, money on the outside. So, you know, it's, it's a strange project. I did stand up at a, a conference and point out that, according to Rice's theorem, you couldn't actually prove that you had cloned a human being unless human beings run on, run on Java. But they didn't quite like my uh, <laughs> theory. We'll, we'll do Rice's theorem properly in a moment. So what we're going to do is do the, the famous and infamous Moore's Law, uh, but uh, do it properly. So we all know Moore's Law... Uh, approximate doubling of computing power every 18 months. <clears throat> so the question really is, um, when is a computer going to overtake us, when it's going to be more intelligent uh, than us? There's a few uh, <coughs> estimates around, and certainly my estimate, if we're classical, and we'll go on to, to ask what, what classical means, but if we're basically a computer... Uh, in the normal sense of the word, you know, we're just like your IBM PC, but just a bit better and, you know, obviously a bit squishy and made of blood and blood and protein and so on. Um, then my estimate is that, that we'll hit, hit the parity point in about 2053. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, his estimate is about 2047. So I think, you know, broadly speaking, people agree on when we'll have, uh, when we'll hit the parity point. And, of course, that's why AI has suddenly become so phenomenal in the press, because we're looking at a time when, you know, within the lifetime of many human beings on the planet, uh, maybe even most, if you, if you think that our life expectancies are going up rapidly, we're going to see AIs, and AIs are going to have the same number of transistors or gates as the human brain. So that's quite an interesting prospect. There is, however, a question as to whether the brain is a classical computer. Um, there's a group, uh, this chap called Travis Craddock, in, the, in America, he's now at Nova in Florida, and he asked the question, um, well, scientists believe that there was no quantum mechanical effect that could possibly happen in hot, wet, noisy environments like brains and plants and things like that. And then a group uh, discovered that uh, photosynthesis is in fact a quantum effect. 
And so in plants, uh, there's quantum, quantum coupling between the uh, photosynthesis elements in plants that gives them their efficiency. So what Travis did is he looked at uh, our neurons and he looked for a set of proteins that are connected to each other, uh, are organized next to each other with the same pattern, right, in the same pattern as chlorophyll, i.e. that they could be doing some sort of quantum effect. And he found some, and this is his uh, analysis that came out uh, probably three months ago and hasn't yet been written up by a journalist. However, <laughs> uh, I have done an article which I'm hoping to put into um, probably New Scientist um, about it. Uh, and then the other question was, well, of course, photosynthesis relies on light. So where does the light come from, right, in your skull? And so he uh, did a little bit more research and pointed out that uh, mitochondria, which are the power plant in your, uh, in your entire body, actually give out high-energy ultraviolet photons when they, um, they excrete them as a byproduct of, of generating electricity, uh, generating power in the brain. So he said, well, look, there's a source of light and there's things that are you know, oriented in a way that could be uh, quantum mechanical. Uh, that's, all, that's as far as he's got, right? But that there's some debate about that. So if we look at um, the, the mobile question, uh, the um, CEO of ARM got up in 2012 and he said, essentially, Moore's law is irrelevant in mobile because we're not trying to optimize chips for speed. We're trying to optimize chips for power and other things. Um, so you know, mobile runs a little bit behind, and we'll see why in a, in a few seconds. Um, so I'm just going to talk about desktop chips here, and we'll see why. Um, and of course, so let's let's squidge, squidge our Intel uh, map down in the bottom left-hand corner, and let's sort of see what happens. Well, the big problem is that as we as we move out, and we need to get to somewhere around 2053 to see what's happening. Uh, power goes up in an Intel environment uh, dramatically. Somewhere, you know, we might be very, very lucky and only get to 300 watts, but we might e easily get to 10 kilowatts with a current sort of uh, rate of, of increase in power use. Um, and so if you're trying to optimize for power, which you have to in a mobile environment, um, you're, you're probably power constrained. Now, of course, the nice thing about human brain is we do manage to pack an enormous amount of power uh, into a relatively small uh, um, computing engine. So that there is some hope for engineers. If you want to look at sort of what happens as you really kind of push it, then this is where we're kind of going. So if we're a classical brain, then we need to get up into the sort of uh, 10 terabyte or 10 teragate uh, to 100 teragate level in order to... Uh, in order to make a computer with that sort of power. If we're quantum, we need to go up another three, uh, about five to six orders of magnitude to, to get it. And that will take us to 2080. But even if we're quantum, right, we're, you know, we're looking at parity in 2080. So again, in, in some people's lifetime, um, I'll tell you how I come to that if, if you want later. But of course, the limitation is, uh, is that we would be at 10 kilowatts if we, uh, if we got there. So, <clears throat> this is a linear question, right? And humans do do something uh, that computers don't appear to do yet. We are quite creative, and we appear to exhibit free will, right? So we choose to come to events like this. We choose what we say. 
we create tables and chairs out of cardboard. These are, these are quite wacky and creative things. Um, creativity is something that wasn't really recognized a couple of thousand years. In Greek times, people didn't think that people invented or created. But today, somewhere like the Talent Garden, we, we, you know, we, this is designed for creativity, that we're here to create. Um, and so what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about creativity. So it's a monkey moonshot problem. You know the monkey in the moonshot? You know, uh, President Monkey announces he's going to go to the moon, and the monkey starts kind of, uh, you know, working how to go to the moon, and the monkey announces to the president that he's, he's climbed the nearby tree and is well on his way towards the moon. And you go, it's, it's not, it's a non-linear problem, right? So if the monkey is climbing a linear problem, the question is, is there something that you've got to do that's non-linear between the top of your mountain and the moon? Is there, so it's a class problem. Is there a different class of things? And I'm going to argue that creativity is a different class of thing. And this is uh, uh, sort of Lucas Penrose argument. So Roger Penrose, um, who write, wrote The Emperor's New Mind, uh, Lucas, who did The Minds and Machines, and ar argues that, that we're not, it's also... What's the other one? Um, I can't remember. You see, I'm a human being, so I'm highly fallible, right? <clears throat> okay. So this is the bit where we get into some mathematics, okay? So if you're all ready, <laughs> take a swig of your alcohol, have a kind of bit of tapas. I'm going to, just going to have a, a quick drink. Um, This is, yeah, and I need every, every bit of sugar I can get. Now, the brain runs on sugar, remember, pure, pure sugar. So um, you, you, you take it in and you immediately burn it. It's quite efficient in that respect, Nothing, no, no messing around. Okay, so uh, a ch chap called David Hilbert at the turn of the century uh, announced a series of problems. And uh, one of the problems, uh, and there are 21 of them, um, and Hilbert's 10th problem was uh, the one about Diophantine equations. And he asked, essentially, could you make a machine, some sort of method like long multiplication, that could solve any mathematical problem? And he specifically posed these the Diophantine uh, problems. Um, and it's that problem, which is called the Einschuldigens problem, that Alan Turing solved in 1936 and is the subject of the imitation game, right? Now, they never actually say Einschuldigen's problem in, in the movie. They say that problem, which I can't even pronounce. But that's the thing he did, and that's the thing he really should be for fam uh, famous for, even though he did undoubtedly shorten the World War II by a couple of years, which I, I guess we all have a, a lot to thank. Um, <clears throat> and the way that Turing solved the halting problem, well... To solve the halting problem, he had to invent the computer. So he invented the entire computer, and then he came up with this thought experiment and said, well, if I, if I have a computer and I um, make a thing called halt, right, which is just a function, and then I pipe that, the output of halt, and I say, well, if, it's a, if, it, if it goes into an infinite loop, or if it loops, going into an infinite loop, otherwise make an output, and then if I feed that back into the input of this... Right, causes a paradox. So it's a paradoxical construction. So what he therefore said is, therefore, halt can't exist. There can be no way of making a procedure that will say if some other procedure will finish. So why is that interesting? Well, 
Pierre de Fermat, um, who's read Fermat's Last Theorem and all the books and so on, he came up with this, this idea, which is x squared plus y squared was dead set squared, which is simply um, a 3, 4, 5 tri triangle, right? And he said, although there are 13 solutions in the square, for the square, the 2, so n equals 2, there are no solutions for any other dimension above it. So there's no, you know, the square in the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the square of the other two sides, is there are 13 solutions, but there is no the cube on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the cubes on the other side. There's no hypercube solution or hyperhypercube solution or whatever. And he said he'd proved it. And uh, we don't know whether he'd prove it. Now, an interesting thing, of course, is if you can... This is just something that you could iterate through. You could just try all these, right? So if you could try all these, you could put them into Holt. And you could say... Try Fermat's last theorem, right? And tell me if it holds. If, if it holds, then I'll know that Fermat's last theorem is true, else I won't, right? So I could just, I could just do this. So what Turing had proven was that since there's no, um, since there's no halting problem, uh, there's no halting solution, you can't just throw anything at a, a computer and have it automatically solved, right? And that's sort of uh, a piece of maths that most of us know from university and we all dismiss because it's sort of all Turing said is there's no single one algorithm that can solve everything, right? Um, and that means there's no single one algorithm that could, for example, solve Fermat's last theorem. There's no, you know, there's no arbitrary sort of, al sort of super algorithm that could just do everything. The question, though, is, is... Is there some clever way around that, that limitation? Right? Is there some sort of way that you can solve just Fermat's last theorem? Because Turing, um, Turing has said you can't solve everything. right? You can't take some arbitrary thing and put, put it into an algorithm. Um, could you kind of get around this? So a bunch of mathematicians worked on this question over many years. <coughs> and the question was, is a Diophantine equation is something that has... Uh, whole number solutions solvable by a machine. And eventually, a chap called Matievich uh, managed to prove that it's not solvable. So an arbitrary Diophantine equation is not solvable. So that narrows Turing down and says, particular type of equation, right, that's not solvable either. Just the generality is not solvable, but that specific <coughs> class is not solvable. Right? Then a few years later, <coughs> these guys prove that now, the annoying thing about uh, Fermat's last theorem is it's not a Diophantine equation because the n's are variables. So it's called an exponential Diophantine equation. And as soon as you get into maths, you find that changing a single digit in an equation changes the whole nature uh, of an, uh, the whole field of mathematics. I phoned up one of the top mathematicians on this subject in the world. He's a guy from Aachen. And I said, I'm very interested in this thing. Can you explain it to me? And he said... He's written a book about it. He said, no, I didn't write that chapter. You will have to speak to this other guy. So he wasn't, you know, a single digit change. It was a different, different mathematician, a different part of the world needs to do it. <clears throat> but anyway, these guys prove that after many years that an exponential Diophantine equation can be rewritten as a Diophantine equation. Now we're in maths land, okay? So he's proven that there is no solution to a Diophantine equation. 
these guys then prove Fermat's last theorem <coughs> is Diophantine. That means there is no algorithm which will find a solution, which will tell you whether Fermat's last theorem is solvable or not, and indeed can solve it. Right? There's no algorithm that can do it. And then, in 1995, Andrew Wiles came up with a proof. So you've got a situation where you've got no algorithm that can find a solution, and then a human being does it. And that's, to me, the Wiles paradox. How did he do it? That's a simple paradox. Right? Something that is forbidden to, to be done by a computer has been done, therefore he can't be a computer. And that's my talk. Whoa. Okay. Again. Now, <laughs> now there are some standard objections to my my argument, and so there are some backup slides in a moment <laughs> when you start picking holes in the argument. But that's the essential. That's the essential thing that that humans demonstrably do something that a computer has been proven not to be able to do. Right? So I think that human intelligence is a different class of intelligence mm -hmm. than computer intelligence. You're listening to Tech Talk Central.